You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience here at Westwood One Podcast Network, powered by Conservative Review. And it is Wednesday afternoon, July 18th. And I'm telling you, it feels like it really feels like a Monday. It feels like everything this week is so unsorted. And it feels like every day the news cycle is kind of similar. And the reason why it feels like it's similar is because all you hear with regard to Russia, 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 which is really a microcosm of everything else going on, is a bunch of false dichotomies. You know, this is something we've hit on, a theme we've hit on since the primaries, since the general election, since the nascent months of the Trump administration, and going till now, that the problem we have is not Trump or not Trump, whether you love Trump too much or hate him too much, never Trump or always Trump, or feel there should have been someone else in charge of the Republican Party and and uh, becoming president. The real problem is we don't have a conservative movement. The real problem is we don't have a bunch of people that are supposed to actually do this full-time for a living, who are smart about it, who have not a reactive but a proactive agenda where they wake up every day and make the play calls. Here's what we should be doing on foreign policy. Here's what we shouldn't be doing. Here's why. Here's how to message it. Here's what we should be doing on immigration. Here's what we should be doing on taxes. Here's what we should be doing on spending. Here's what we should be doing on budget. You know, whether you're a fan or foe of our work here, one thing I think you all recognize, and I know we have a lot of liberal listeners, and I, I hope you guys recognize this as well, and I, I, my understanding is this is what brings some of you to this show, is that I'm always going to bring you a different perspective than the false dichotomy put out by you know, the two parties, the dueling liberal and conservative media narratives, and what I think is the authentic constitutional conservative view rooted in our history and tradition, but also attentive to the details and facts of each issue, you know, as it comes up in the in the media cycle, or the issues that don't come up and that need to be reported on, that will report on, that are often missed by both the liberal and conservative media. When you don't have that strong play being made, then the Republican Party and Trump is the head of that party, certainly mixed with Trump's Trumpism and kind of his erratic, impulsive nature, which sometimes works out good, but sometimes doesn't, it's going to be left to its own devices, and he's going to drift. And we're going to go off message. But if we had a movement that consistently, on a daily basis, had a strong agenda Divorced from reacting to the Democrats and the media, you'd be able to have your cake and eat it too. You'd be able to stand for the most effective pro-American conservative policies 
that would keep us safe and strong externally, keep us prosperous internally. But at the same time, you'd actually be able to own the libs and the media if that's your end goal, which it seems like a lot of them are. It's, well, let's own the left. But ironically, we often own them by owning their issues and parroting their issues. You know, Just because the left for many years was pro-Russia doesn't mean we should be pro-Russia. It means we should be intellectually honest, call out the media on the left for it, and then proceed to our own policies. And if we actually did that forcefully enough, I think it would resonate with the public. You know, most of the time when the media draws blood from Trump or Republicans, it's not on the nonsense. It's when they're able to successfully pin us with a liberal belief that we're too weak on being pro-American. Sometimes they're dishonest. Most of the time they're dishonest in their portrayal of it. But if that is the outcome, they'll be successful. And I really think this Russia thing is going to draw blood. Not the, the phony thing, oh, you know, the, the, the fact that uh, Trump collaborated with the Russians on the elections. I don't think most people buy that. But that certainly is out there. And when you don't dispel that and you go and hold such a press conference being obsequious to Putin, it's going to validate what the media is saying, even though it's an invalid um, approach because obviously there's been no proof that the Trump administration colluded with them, the Trump campaign colluded with them. If anything, it was the DNC and the Obama administration that failed to deal with it as part of their broader weak posture towards Russia on an array of policies. But nonetheless, it puts us in a bind when Trump is perceived by the public and he is perceived as being weak on Russia. I mean, why should we ever have to lose an election for something that's not even conservative? At least lose the election for being perceived as too tough on putting American interests first. Now, part of the problem here is, again, because we don't have our own, our own um, agenda, we only react to the other side. So things come out all screwed up. And before I get to this false dichotomy on Russia, where Russia's a threat, where Russia's not a threat, what we should do about it, what we should message about it, and how it would fit in with Trump's broader campaign agenda of America first, I want to preface this by talking about something that few others will talk about today, but fits broadly into this, um, this narrative of conservatives not having an agenda, conservatives not forcefully getting the president on board with what we want. And as a result, often we get the lowest common denominator of the president's instincts rather than the better part of his instincts. And that's with primaries. I noted a couple weeks ago that Trump is screwing us in the primaries. He's not getting – Trump's endorsement is everything, right? 80 to 90 percent of the GOP base loves Trump. And for better or for worse, he's the ultimate final say on any issue. When he does good, that's a good thing. When he does bad, it's a bad thing because then he's getting people who would otherwise be suspicious of, of liberal policies, personnel, or candidates – to now like them, and then it's almost like the other side is capturing our nuclear weapons. Trump's a nuclear weapon. He's a very potent weapon. He is everything in Republican politics now. 
conservative politics even. So where he's helpful to our cause, he's more helpful than any previous Republican leader in modern history. But where he's on the other side, he's more of a potent weapon than any Republican because, you know, a Bushy, a Romney, you know, that type, Ryan McConnell would support something liberal. It's pretty easy to coalesce kind of the talk radio, Fox News uh, viewership crowd against those policies. But if Trump puts his seal of approval on it, that makes it very difficult for us. And part of the problem is Trump is not endorsing conservatives who challenge liberal liberal Republicans in primaries, whether they're open seats or whether they're against incumbent rhinos. But he gets involved often against conservatives if he doesn't like that guy in support of a liberal. And this is what we saw where, you know, you had Lee Bright running for Trey Gaddy's seat. He would have been, you know, a Louis Gohmert type of guy. Not only would he have been conservative, but he would have very rigorously defended the president and his supposed agenda. And then you had a Rubio type of guy. And the Rubio guy won. It was relatively close. But where was Trump's endorsement? Yet Trump got involved in... in, in uh, so he wasn't willing to get involved on behalf of a conservative even in an open seat. But he was willing to get involved against an incumbent conservative, Mark Sanford, and, uh, and go after him. Now... You'll say, you know, obviously there's a couple anomalies there. Mark Sanford is kind of weird. He's very libertarian, which he's good on some issues, but then he's, I don't know, he's not so good on other issues. And even on fiscal issues, I mean, he starts talking about a carbon tax. He's kind of a weird dude. I mean, the Appalachian Trail, need, need, need I say more? So, I mean, I don't have that much emotional investment in him. But, you know, either way, he, he was vocal, that is, Sanford was vocal in criticizing Trump, particularly on tariffs. And Trump went after him. Trump hated him. All right, so then you'll say, okay, here's the deal. Everything with Trump is personal, right? So, you know, he's going to go after even incumbent Republicans, unprecedented for a sitting president from his own party, if the guy went after him personally. All right, so it worked against us in some cases, but by golly, when you have a rhino never Trumper criticizing Trump, standing for re-election with a stiff primary, you know, competition in primary, you would think Trump would be involved in two seconds to get involved and support the more MAGA type of candidate, particularly when he can have his cake and eat it too, support the MAGA agenda, and go after someone who attacked him personally. Right? Well, last night there was a little known a little focused upon election in South Alabama, there was a runoff between Martha Roby and Bobby Bright. Now, Martha Roby is a typical rhino hack occupying a nice conservative district from Southern Alabama when we could have a conservative in that seat. Now, again, this race is also a little complicated because there were a number of better choices. She was very vulnerable, and we actually could have drawn her into a runoff with a better candidate. But this guy, Bobby Bright, who was a former Democrat recruited by Rahm Emanuel to run, and he won a seat and became one of these blue dog Democrats in 2006. And he was defeated in the 2010 wave where you know we kicked out all the blue dogs. 
So, you know, he has the baggage of voting for Pelosi. Now, he changed parties and ironically is challenging Roby from the right. Um, now, look, he would he was a jerk because he shouldn't have run and used his name ID to box out better conservative candidates if he truly cared about being conservative. But nonetheless, most activists I know in the district still supported him. They're like, look, at the end of the day, he was one of those type of Democrats that flipped and he's more, you know, he'd be more for our agenda than, you know, the Paul Ryan type of Republicans. So he was an ideal. It's obnoxious that he got in there. But now that we have the runoff, let's go and support him. But guess what? Guess what? We can't have nice things. So in the runoff, Trump supports Martha Roby, and Martha Roby crushes it, even though she was very vulnerable. And then Trump gloats about his victory today, or her victory, which is his victory today. So we're stuck with a rhino who bashed Trump, was an ever-Trumper, but Trump supports him, supports her. What gives? That tells me that Trump is no different than anyone else, that he'll be pulled into the orbit of the greatest gravitational pull. And that gravitational pull is the establishment. So you have Kevin McCarthy and those types who will go to Jared Kushner and get Trump involved on behalf of rhinos. But you don't have conservatives getting involved and saying and, – and conservative media making a huge deal about it and getting on Fox News and saying this is an opportunity. Why is Trump supporting this rhino? And I guarantee you he wouldn't do it again because he cares about what conservatives think. Cares about what the liberal media thinks too. Cares about what everyone thinks. But he certainly does care about what conservatives think. But conservatives don't make the play call. They're not involved in these primaries. They don't care. Trump, it's all about Trump. We don't have to elect conservatives to Congress. Trump will save us. But ironically, not only is Trump not saving us, he's actually hurting us because it's a double-edged sword. Once Trump is the 800-pound gorilla in the primaries, if you have him, it would be the single solution to finally winning primaries. We'd win them, whereas we don't have the money or name ID to do so. But if he's against you, then you're even in worse shape. And if we don't make the play calls and we're just reacting to the left and McCarthy and the establishment makes their calls, he's going to endorse their candidates. It's just really frustrating. Really, really frustrating. Um, you know... I, I, I just I just don't know what to say. I, I just don't know what to say. Why is nobody talking about this? And, you know, I wanted to segue this into our next guest. This is what's happening with Russia. Conservatives aren't don't have an agenda. Conservatives aren't every day pushing the president on immigration on terror financing, on a Monroe Doctrine in Latin America, on making the right alliances, using the right soft power, going after Qatar and Turkey in terms of funding, and then just getting rid of Afghanistan and all Somalia and all this other garbage and Syria. And then that's where Russia comes into play. We have this false dichotomy that either Russia is the most imminent problem and the most important problem is the fact that they helped get Trump elected, which is obviously ridiculous. But then in order to respond to that, 
so many on the right are like, Russia's awesome. Putin's awesome. He's a partner in Western civilization. And, you know, why are we antagonizing him? We need to kiss up to him. And they're both wrong. Russia is not the single end-all threat that should consume 100% of our resources like it was during the Cold War. But nor is he some innocuous thing. There's something much greater than the stupid election stuff. And that's Trump's, and that is Russia's nuclear prowess. That they are developing nuclear superweapons beyond belief, nuclear offense, violating that stupid New START treaty. And I'm not saying we need to have a Cold War style buildup. I'm not saying we shouldn't. I, I was totally for Helsinki. Unlike Jeff Flake, who's criticizing Trump and totally was all in in the kiss up to Cuba, Cuba we don't have to deal with. We should never deal with it. They don't hold any cards. Russia, at the end of the day, still has nuclear weapons. There are some theaters where they could be helpful. There's theaters where they're neutral, and there's theaters where they're hurting us. And we need to combat them where they're hurting us. At the same time, I have no problem with the, with the diplomacy. But what Trump displayed in Helsinki was a disgrace. Right? It, didn't, it, it did not, and it didn't reflect really even his policies, which are largely good. But there's one play call I keep making, and I have an article out today. Trump could re, re, rejuvenate his America first posture, be tough on Russia, and totally own the Democrats and the media and put them in a catch-22 bind like never before. And that is – Putin said he wants to extend this unilateral disarmament for America, this New START treaty that's slated to expire in three years. Trump could flatly say no and call upon Ryan and, 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 and uh, McConnell to put a resolution on the floor to say we will not extend New START, unilateral disarmament. And that will single-handedly put the Democrats in a bind because they all supported it, every Democrat and the media. Where was this anti-Russia prowess when we needed them? That would be America first. That's the play call we should be making so we don't have to be placed in this false dichotomy of having to defend Putin and defend Trump's posture because the election hacking thing is, is, is nonsense, so therefore we have to go the other direction. Nothing to do with that. And by the way, as I mentioned earlier, and I have an article I'll, I'll link to in show notes, Trump should totally jujitsu this interfering with election stuff and, and demand a five-point plan that I have on going after foreigners voting in our elections. By the way, I've heard from friends that work in this field that they found Russian-sounding names who voted in our elections. So you know, if that's what it's going to take to get the media and the Democrats serious on this, do it. But go after voter fraud and go after the New START treaty, and that is the way to own the left on this issue. And also stand for the right conservative balance on Russia. And that's where I want to bring in our next guest. And fellows, I've told you before that one of our goals is to bring here to the conservative conscience voices that you probably don't hear from, you know, the typical news cable shows, the typical talking heads that know nothing about policy, know nothing about what's important, uh, people who, who will actually speak over the rancor of the false dichotomies 
um, that's really put out by by both uh, both liberal parties in Washington that are just way off message, off focus. And today I wanted to bring to you to discuss the real threat of Russia and the real focus that we need to prioritize. Dr. Mark Schneider, he's a senior analyst with the National Institute for Public Policy. Um, before he retired from government, he he worked at DOD. He was a C- senior executive service, um, served in a number of capacities there uh, in the, within the Office of Secretary of Defense for Policy, including Principal Director for F- Forces Policy, Principal Director for Strategic Defense, Space and Verification Policy, Director for Strategic Arms Control Policy, and Representative of the Secretary of Defense to the Nuclear Arms Control Implementation Commission's um, certainly someone who has a lot of experience with <clears throat> understanding nuclear capabilities, missile defense, Russia, China, um, served as well in the State Department as a senior foreign service member, lots of commendations and awards. And it is really an honor to bring him to the conservative conscience for the first and hopefully not the last time. Hey, Dr. Schneider, how are you? Well, thank you. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. Well, thank you for joining on such short notice. You know, I was just scrambling to find someone who could actually speak um, about what nobody else is talking about. I, I just want to start off before we get to the new START treaty and some of the details of what's concerning about this lopsided uh, advantage that Russia now enjoys over us in terms of uh, nuclear capability. Uh, w- w- what I'm concerned about is that on the one hand, we have the Democrats that are now obsessed with Russia from the vantage point of saying, you know, Trump colluded with them to get elected. Uh, There's a Russian under every sabotage of our elections. And therefore, in order to push back against that, a lot of my colleagues and people on the right um, are almost overcorrecting in the sense that there's nothing wrong with, with Russia. He's a strategic partner to save Western civilization in terms of, you know, some of the more extreme voices on that side. And meanwhile, I, th- I feel like we're missing the point and some of the opportunities we have to address now in terms of the nuclear problems. Could you just give us a, a, a broad overview of why we should care about Putin's growing nuclear arsenal, his arsenal of super weapons, the delivery cap- capabilities, the warheads um, – you know, to the average layman, they think, all right, we got a bunch of nukes, they got a bunch of nukes, so mutually assured destruction, what does it matter? Well, it, it, it matters uh, quite a lot because of um, the nuclear strategy that Putin actually developed when he, uh, before he became president. Uh, at the time, um, he, he was the secretary of the Russian National Security Council staff, which is the equivalent to the U.S. National uh, Security Advisor uh, position. John Bolton, of course, holds that uh, right now. Uh, and he, adopt, and he uh, developed a, a nuclear strategy which allows for the first use of, of, of nuclear weapons in circumstances that not, no Western leader would even remotely consider using nuclear weapons in. Uh, its first use in, in limited and regional wars, um, its first use um, um, in a policy uh, context, um, uh, the strategy uh, has sort of turned reality on its head. Uh, certainly, 
for many, many decades. It's been recognized uh, in, in the West uh, that the introduction of nuclear uh, weapons in, into a conflict is a, uh, essentially an act of last resort, a, situ- a situation um, in which you're uh, facing a very, very serious uh, threat, uh, and one um, that um, entails enormous uncertainties and risks associated with uncontrolled escalation. Um, the Russian doctrine that Putin developed uh, really turns reality on its head uh, and uh, talks about the introduction of nuclear weapons uh, as um, a uh, as a means of what they call de-escalation of a war or a conflict. Uh, that's really a, a crazy idea, uh, and. Putin sees nuclear weapons very much uh, as a important or really the only um, uh, factor that gives Russia superpower status, so he puts enormous uh, emphasis on it. Uh, it's their highest military priority. Uh, they exercise the, the, the first use of nuclear weapons in uh, essentially 100% of their large um, military uh, exercises. Uh, and uh, they exercise against us. Uh, and that is a, a very dangerous situation when you put it in the context of a very uh, aggressive modernization program. Uh, they've modernized since uh, 1997 when it began um, approximately uh, 60% uh, of their uh, strategic nuclear forces. Uh, and that's the conserv- and that's a really conservative estimate. Putin claims eighty two percent. I don't believe that number. I think uh, but uh, roughly two thirds I think is 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 credible. In that same time period, we have not modernized a single system, and we will not modernize a, a single system under the current plan uh, for for approximately ten years. And uh, wow. that is a very, uh, I believe, a very dangerous combination of, of factors that are currently in play. Um, we, I think we have to emphasize deterrence with this man. Um, uh, arms control is not the solution uh, to uh, the problem he uh, poses. Um, and it's a very, very considerable one. It's certainly not the, the Soviet Union. He is, he, he, uh, he is not, uh, he, he doesn't, um, have the sort of power the Soviet Union had. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't believe that Putin would have actually risen to a senior position in, in the Soviet Union. He he reached the rank of lieutenant colonel in the KGB, their, their secret police and spy organization. He might have made colonel, but I doubt he would have, he would have gotten to a senior grade. And um, Reportedly, uh, his evaluations uh, in the KGB were very good, except that uh, they regarded him as too willing to take risks, and that's not <laughs> good. Not, that's not a good characteristic for somebody who's got a finger on the nuclear button. No, no, exactly. And I, th- I think you mentioned a very important point. I really wanted to focus on today that. Look, it, it's not the singular focus that we had to have in the in the 80s under Reagan, under the Soviet Union. A lot of people point out their economy is, is one-tenth of ours. It's very much reliant on their uh, energy exports, which we're hopefully going to start to neutral, neutralize with our exports. But you know, at the end of the day, is it correct to assume that he's not developing all of these – and I want to get to the definitions a little later – both updating the strategic – nuclear capabilities and uh, introducing a bunch of state-of-the-art uh, tactical 
nuclear weapons just to hold on to Crimea. Um, you know, I don't think he needs that for that. I mean, ultimately, doesn't he have our, our, his eyes set towards us? Cer- cer- certainly, um, the the focus of his military build up and the emphasis on nuclear weapons is not to defend the Crimea. Uh, it's a much broader uh, agenda. Uh, he sees it as a as a way of scaring people. Um, that's why they talk so much about nuclear weapons. They, I mean, they constantly talk. He he does it personally. They make nuclear threats uh, of various types at the most senior level, including Putin. He's made um, at least five uh, threats of uh, targeting his nuclear um, missiles on the United States or or our allies. That's why they fly bomber aircraft routinely into air defense um, identification zones of the United States, Canada, the NATO states, uh, Japan. Uh, This is done deliberately to intimidate um, this is why they give so much um, um, uh, uh, emphasis on their nuclear exercises, and that's why so much material about it, what they're what they're doing appears in the Russian press. It's an attempt to intimidate, um, and uh, it's it's dangerous when you when you see each of these little pieces in in the broader context. And and that that's the important thing, you know. I'm my politics. I'm very leery of a lot of things we've done over the last two decades. Our involvement in the Middle East and some Islamic civil wars, we've wasted so much money and lives. And, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, especially on my side, are like, yeah, Crimea, Syria, what's the deal? Like, you know, how does that even affect us? But, um, and, and in some cases, in a narrow sense, I don't think we need to directly get involved there. But, like, what you're saying is that if you view everything in totality, um, he's clearly trying to, if not bring back the Cold War, but certainly bring back uh, Russia's superpower status. And it seems hard to believe that he's somehow going to develop all these super weapons and just stop with uh, Crimea and a couple of other um, strategic focuses that he has as long as we leave him alone and don't antagonize him like some are characterizing. Um, What I wanted you to explain to our audience is – the, the importance of tactical nu- nuclear weapons. So I read in one of your recent articles, uh, publications, and we're going to put some of this on our show notes so so people could read in the links, that Russia has 10 times as many tactical nuclear weapons as the United States does. Is it correct to describe the danger as follows? That, you know, w- with our standing strategic nuclear arsenals, we have mutual distort- assured destruction. But when it comes to tac- tactical nuclear weapons, he could basically, um, let's say, invade Poland, do something like that, and then immediately launch tactical nuclear weapons with, um, you know, a, a certain low impact that's very targeted, but it won't elicit obviously us to launch, you know, our strategic nuclear weapons, but it will kind of give them the upper hand in any conflict. Yes, uh, and, and they certainly uh, have an enormous disparity in, in, in non-strategic or tactical nuclear weapons. It, uh, it may even be 20 to 1, uh, but uh, the uh, 10 to 1 number is, is probably the most frequently used. The Obama administration um, acknowledged that at one point. Uh, the U.S. Strategic Commission used that number. 
it's not only the numerical disparity that's important here. It's uh, an even bigger disparity uh, in, in the types of weapons. Uh, the U.S. tactical nuclear capability has been reduced to um, one type of, of, of uh, tactical nuclear bomb, the B-61, and there are a number of uh, versions of it. Um, the Russian capability uh, is essentially a, a smaller version um, of the uh, Soviet capability that existed um, in the Cold War. It, it's literally dozens of types of, of, of uh, tactical nuclear weapons, uh, and we can't match any of those capabilities. We no longer have any nuclear artillery. We no longer have any uh, battlefield nuclear w weapons. We uh, don't have any nuclear anti-ship weapons. We have no nuclear uh, anti-aircraft weapons. Uh, so the, there's an enormous uh, gap here um, in, in which um, the, they can threaten to use or actually use a, a type of, of weapon that we simply can't match without uh, an escalatory response. Now, the, the Nuclear Posture Review uh, uh, advocated, and they're going ahead with this now, uh, taking uh, steps to, to reduce um, uh, that asymmetry in, in the sense of, of in, in, uh, giving us a small deterrent capability, um, putting a low-yield warhead, for example, on the Trident strategic missile, uh, development in the, in the midterm of a new nuclear uh, ship launched uh, um, cruise missile. Uh, but even with, with all of that, uh, there's still going to be lots and lots of areas um, in which um, the uh, Russians uh, have the capability to launch uh, discriminating uh, low-yield attacks, and we won't have any comparable capability. And this may tempt them, uh, or tempt Putin in particular, to, to take the, the risk that he can um, invade a uh, state on his border and, and then deter uh, a NATO um, response um, by uh, the threat of, of a, uh, nuclear, uh, uh, a nuclear es escalation. Uh, and this is not me speaking. Um, this has been stated by the uh, deputy commander of the uh, NATO uh, military force. Uh, it's been uh, recently stated by a um, former uh, commander of the United States Strategic uh, Command. Uh, this is a real threat. And when you're dealing with, with somebody um, who um, has a uh, higher than, than normal, certainly by any, any Western norm, uh, willingness to take risks, and you, you, you give him uh, a, a uh, large numerical and an even bigger qualitative superiority, uh, then uh, you're, you're playing with fire. So, so to, to kind of break this down for our audience, you have the nuclear trident, you got, you know, Air, land, and sea, right? The air, air launchers, um, you know, the strategic uh, air bombers, obviously the submarines that launch from sea, and then the land-based uh, missile launchers. And you're saying that on all three legs of that stool, we don't have a delivery capability for tactical 
nuclear weapons? Yes, we well, we we have eliminated uh, as a matter of policy, and I, I, I it was it, decisions were uh, initially made during the Bush administration, and it got worse with the passage of time. Uh, we we compl- uh, except for the the, the uh, one gravity bomb, um, we completely eliminated our non-strategic or, or tactical uh, nuclear capability, and they did not. Wow. Um, if you if you take they claim um, that they've actually reduced their the, the size of of their stockpile uh, by seventy five percent and that could even be true but the problem here is that we've gone so much further than that and uh, the Soviet stockpile was so large that a seventy five percent a percent reduction could still uh, leave them with over five thousand uh, tactical nuclear weapons and so, if uh, sure, sure, and sorry. if that Cool. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go to continue. Uh, I mean, that would still leave them with over five thousand tactical nuclear weapons and and, and many many types that uh, simply uh, can launch attacks that we can't match. And and they and they're aware of that. There's no, there's no secrecy here on what we have. Wow. Um. Yeah. I mean, because we're we're a lot more transparent than they are in all these uh you know arms reduction deals. So just to get a general sense, um, you know, our our side's been very rusty. On this issue, it seems like almost since the early '90s, uh, we've we've just turned our back on this. And it, you know, it's understandable with the collapse of the Soviet Union, we wouldn't need to spend as much money and maintain as as large of a stockpile. But you're saying we basically got rid of all of our uh, a lot of our tactical nuclear weapons, our ability with the um, through the triad to to deliver them in a, in a battlefield scenario. And then I, I want to bring in the strategic. Nuclear capabilities and the the New Start Treaty. Um, you know, when I was a young tadpole working in politics, this was one of the first major issues I dealt with in the lame duck session of 2010. Um, you know, every single Democrat and a lot of the prominent Republicans that are now criticizing the president for being weak on Putin, you know, such as Corker and Lamar Alexander, uh, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, they all voted for this New Start Treaty. Um, basically, my understanding was that from day one, it was lopsided, even if you could verify, because it said that America – so you know you had to reduce both the stockpile of nuclear warheads and the delivery capabilities, you know, all three um, uh, legs of the, of the triad, ICBM launchers, the, the submarine launchers, and the um, strategic bombers, and it basically limited – the number of deployed launch deployed and undeployed launchers to 800 and the number of warheads to 1550 now right off the bat america had 1800 warheads so they were over the limit and had to reduce russia to begin with had fewer than even the target and then we reduced our warheads by 25% and then my understanding correct me if i'm wrong is that the russians had 7 years to to reduce we both had 7 years which you know, was due this past February. And basically, Russia downright increased their stockpile um, to over 1,800. By some measures, if you, you, you know, actually count it properly, you say up to 2,600. And then magically, a couple months later, they say they complied and only have 1,444. What's yeah, with so that? That's, that's essentially uh, accurate. Um, I do not. Uh, I think one of of the key issues uh, that ought to be looked at, if we if we seriously consider extending the New Star Treaty, uh, is the issue of whether or not the Russians actually made 
uh, the reductions um, in um, uh, the, in their deployed capability and and sort of magically uh, got from well above the um, the treaty limit to uh, just below the uh, the treaty limit. Uh, I don't think that's happened. Um, you have to. I mean, you have to know certain things about the New Star Treaty to to understand what I'm what I'm saying. Um, from a uh, from a negotiating standpoint, it's literally a disaster. Um, it eliminated uh, almost uh, all of the most important aspects of the original Star Treaty. This is the Reagan Bush negotiation. Um, the the verification regime was just gutted. Uh, in in uh, the, the New Star Treaty, and um, the amazing reality is there's not a single inspection uh, in the in the, the New Star Treaty that can demonstrate um, the absence or presence of a violation of the treaty. You have inspections, but the inspections cannot verify any of the limits that are in the treaty. And this is not me speaking. I mean, uh, this uh, um, is uh, the uh, at the time the uh, uh, vice chairman of the Senate Intelligence Com- uh, Committee, Senator Bond, um, in, in in a floor speech he delivered uh, in 2010, said you simply can't verify the, the numbers uh, in, and he specifically. Uh, mentioned uh, the the deployed warhead limit, 1550. You simply can't verify that, uh, and that's um, and that's what the situation is. The Russians may have given us a whole set of bogus numbers. Now, one interesting thing about this uh, is that TASS, which is the main uh, official Russian news agency, in in December 2007. That's just the few months, two, two months or so before um, the legal limits went into effect, um, they reported uh, that uh, the, 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 Russian, uh, the number of, of Russian warheads was around 1,800, which yep. was 250 um, uh, above what the Russians were officially claiming at that time. Uh, and uh, that's not the only um, report in, in, in Russian state media. Uh, of actions uh, that would violate the the, um, uh, the new Star Treaty. There's actually quite a few of them, and they're being completely ignored by the State Department. Uh, it's almost an amazing situation that our main source of information uh, about Russian compliance with the new Star Treaty is Russian the Russian press and, and <laughs> Russian state media. Because it was and, funny, I got that number from a Congressional Research Service uh, CRS report that quoted TASS, and like you said, I mean, just again to back it up for our listeners, um, the treaty was it was passed in, in in America at least in December 2010. It went into effect February 5th, t- 2011, and they had seven years to reduce, so that that came due February 5th, uh, 2018. And you're saying as late as December 2017, they actually ramped up from about you know. Fifteen thirty-seven warheads to over eighteen hundred, as as reported by the Russian press, and what somehow within two months they got rid of uh, four hundred of them. Yeah, that's impossible. I mean, if if could, could you explain report, what it's like to get? What does that mean to get rid of them? Um, well, 
it's much easier uh, under New START um, um, than it uh, is uh, under the original START treaty, but it's still a lot of effort. Uh, you can't do this sort of thing instantaneously. You have to be very careful in handling nuclear weapons. They have to be uh, safely uh, handled, transported, uh, protected, um, and stored. Uh, you can't just do this instantaneously. Uh, and um, the closer you get to the, the date, um, uh, the final date that the legal limits uh, went into effect, which was February 5th of, of 2018, uh, the more difficult it becomes. Uh, and so the, the, the real bottom line is uh, I think a serious look has to be uh, uh, taken um, on, on the issue of uh, are they on, really in compliance um, with um, the, the new START treaty. They're violating everything else, and uh, I, I find it hard to believe uh, that this is somehow an exception. Um, and uh, we have, uh, we've been told, we were told essentially zero about what happened under new START uh, by the Obama administration. Um, it talked about implementation issues, but didn't identify them, despite a legal requirement uh, to do so. Uh, and the, the problem here uh, is uh, that uh, we have a, um, a constituency uh, is largely inside the Beltway in, in, in the Washington, D.C. area uh, that sees arms control as, as, a, as a panacea. And they don't want to have to deal with the realities of, of, of uh, this situation. And, and compliance is one of the most uh, uncomfortable uh, realities they have to deal with. And it's a very, very bad record. Um, you know, the 2018 Nuclear Posture Review, which was released uh, in, in March, um, for the first time since 2005, um, dealt with uh, a fairly um, fairly broad range of, of Russian violations of existing arms control treaties. Uh, that's a useful step uh, in in the right direction. Uh, but I believe the the State Department bureaucracy, um, the the working level, the permanent government that exists there, uh, has really circled the wagons around the New Star Treaty, and they're trying to protect that from any serious serious um, um, inquiry on, 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 uh, on what's actually going on. And I think that's necessary. Uh, uh, there, there was a, a, a lot of reports um, in the, the couple weeks before the uh, Helsinki summit uh, that the Trump administration was, was going to push nuclear reductions um, with, with, the, with the Russians. Um, at the um, press conference following the um, uh, the uh, summit meetings, uh, uh, Putin talked about extending the, the New Star Treaty. Uh, that's easy for for him to to do because it has almost no effect on 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 Russia. It's too easy to circumvent. Um, there are massive loopholes in the treaty, uh, and uh, Russia is uh, pursuing those loopholes. Sure, sure. And, and, and isn't their strategy not, not just that it's easy for him to do it, but he downright wants it because it holds us down while it you know allows him to exacerbate 
the existing violations of the previous treaties, the INF of 1987, where you know this has already been confirmed by Obama and Trump administrations that he's violated that agreement um, uh, to to not produce more intermediate uh, range nuclear forces with his. Uh, um, you know, ground launch cruise missiles that have nuclear capabilities and a whole array of other things. And and he downright bragged about this in this big March 1st sort of State of the Union address to the Russian Duma. And I look at this and I say, why don't we have a president and a Congress that flatly tells Putin, no, until you fulfill these obligations, we're actually going to ramp up our um, our arsenal because – to me, this very much parallels the Iran deal, which ironically is supported, very much pushed by Russia. Their foreign minister was just in Vienna uh, trying to see how to revive it. And the president very clearly got it. He understands when you get a raw deal. I, well, this yeah. is ridiculous. It's one-sided. You guys are taking our lunch money. You get to do whatever you want, and we're, we're just unilaterally disarming. Why? Has, I, I feel like this is not being brought to his attention. I, I don't understand it. Uh, I mean, the... The New Star Treaty uh, clearly is is the worst arms control, strategic nuclear arms control um, treaty negotiated since Ronald Reagan became president, and fundamentally changed how he did arms control negotiations in a very positive way. Um, the um, I, I mean the the Iran deal is so bad that it makes New Start look good by comparison, but that doesn't change the the problems <laughs> with New Start. The Problem one is it really has no limits in it because there's so many loopholes. Bomber weapons uh, count almost, uh, I mean, just virtually nothing under under the treaty. You can have essentially an almost unlimited number of of air delivered um, uh, uh, strategic nuclear weapons, and they don't count against the the numbers mm-hmm. except for you know one warhead per per heavy bomber, which is uh, minimal. Uh, when you're talking about uh, air- aircraft that can carry anywhere from six to uh, sixteen, and, um, and they count that as one. Yes, it's counted okay. as one. So, so you're dealing. I mean, that alone pushes the actual number of Russian warheads from uh, even if you accept their, their declared number of of uh, fourteen forty one, that would uh, push uh, the actual number of of, of um, strategic nuclear warheads to almost twenty five hundred. And that number is going to increase under any circumstances. Uh, and then uh, there are loopholes like uh, if you uh, put a, um, uh, an ICBM on, a, on an aircraft and you drop it off an aircraft and, and, and ignite it, it doesn't count against any of the treaty limits. And you can have an unlimited number of those. Same thing about surface ships. You put an ICBM on a surface ship, um, and um, it doesn't count against any of the treaty limits. Matter of fact, one of the the super weapons that Putin um, uh, revealed in in his State of the Union um, address, um, uh, the so-called Kinzel or or Dagger, that's a weapon that was prohibited by the original Star Treaty and is allowed uh, by um, the new Star Treaty and doesn't count against the new Star Treaty limits. So, I mean, there are consequences for, for, for bad negotiations. Sure, sure. And my understanding is that Article 5 of New Start did require some sort of consultation with this uh, consultative commission if you introduce a new kind of strategic offensive arm. 
Um, yeah, but there's no indication that the Obama administration ever um, raised any of these issues <laughs> with them. Uh, it's called uh, the the provision is is one that uh, is called the new kinds of strategic offense of arms. It's a carryover of a provision from the original START treaty. Problem here uh, is not only the, the Russians are, are doing things like the the uh, nuclear drone submarine they uh, call the Poseidon, which the Russian press says has a hundred megaton warhead on it. Uh, it's the, uh, the thing or the 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 nuclear power cruise missile. It's it's the uh, these things have never, uh, at least apparently, never been raised with the Russians uh, uh, by the Obama administration. Even after, even if, they, even after this became public, when they when they leaked the existence of of the nuclear drone submarine and in the famous Kremlin biograph that appeared on on, on Russian television describing this thing, uh, apparently this has never been uh, raised with with the Russians. Wow. I mean, again, it sounds very much parallel to what the Obama administration did with Iran. Um, and, and, you know, to me, the president is in so much hot water um, with the media, and I would argue even with the public by looking weak on Putin. And this would be such a good opportunity to totally jujitsu against the very people that really um, kissed up to Putin in, in the most consequential way. But have you. I mean, I know the answer to start. There's no focus on that, you know, inside the Beltway crowd. But have you seen any change in posture from the Trump administration with regard to the desire to update both our missile defense and offensive capabilities? Well, the the the, the nuclear posture uh, review. Um, which was uh, released, I believe, on March 1st of of, of this year. Um, Certainly um, uh, had uh, endorsed uh, the uh, maintenance of the triad and and some fairly modest improvements, but significant ones because they were focused on on deterring low yield nuclear attacks by Russia that uh, didn't uh, exist uh, under the Obama pro- program, like the um, the low yield uh, Trident warhead and uh, the uh, nuclear uh, ship launched uh, uh, cruise missile. Um, and there are other things. Uh, there were other uh, there, there were other uh, uh, small changes, but things that uh, could um, give us an enhanced deterrent capability for little or no money. And and uh, what was basically discarded um, was the ideological constraints um, of the Obama administration uh, th- that prevented us from doing sensible things for for no good reason. Now we have underway um, a, a, a missile defense review uh, right now, um, and it hasn't, of course, it hasn't been uh, released. I'm, I, I expect uh, that. Uh, it will result in, in significant improvements uh, in um, U- U.S. missile defense uh, programs, because certainly uh, the people who have been appointed uh, to um, uh, many of the key positions in the Defense Department um, and the State Department are very good people, and, and they're very uh, supportive of, of missile defense. So, I, I, I mean, I have fairly high expectations for the content of, of uh, that document, but I don't know any 
anything um, um, about it that you know hasn't appeared in, in the press. Um, so I, I can't uh, venture an opinion on on anything that's that anything specific that's likely to be in it. So I, I, and I know time is uh, running late here, and I, I certainly don't want to keep you much longer. You've given us a lot of generous time, um, but just real quick. Um, you know, we've been strong, or at least had a relatively strong posture, or perceived in the world as strong on on missile defense, which has always been somewhat of a deterrent. But isn't it true that if we don't update our offensive capabilities, then it will render it moot? Because my understanding of reading Putin's big address there, I mean, he was really belligerent, that all these super weapons are designed to neutralize our missile defense. Well, he, he claims that, um, but the, in reality, unfortunately, it's worse than that. Um, if you take a look at, at what the characteristics of these things are, it's for nuclear war fighting. Uh, U.S. nuclear, I mean, U.S. missile defense uh, um, has essentially no capability um, against uh, the uh, Russian level uh, threat. It, it might intercept a handful of warheads, but it's not designed against that threat, and, and uh, it, it's a single-layer system. Uh, it poses no significant threat uh, to um, Russian deterrent capability, and they're well aware of that. As a matter of fact, um, I have a recent publication that's on the, the website of uh, National Institute for Public Policy, uh, and, it, and, it, and it's called Russian Lies and, and Hypocrisy uh, on Missile Defense. And what it says is, and it, and it quotes for, verbatim just about every senior official uh, in the Russian government for the last 20 years who have had a, a, a role in, in uh, their offensive capabilities, uh, as saying that U.S. missile defense doesn't affect them. Uh, and uh, uh, I also document uh, what they've said. Uh, again, this is, uh, this is mainly uh, direct quotes from them about the scope of their own missile defense programs. And their missile defense is, while it's technically inferior to our, our own, it's aimed at the United States. And in some respects, it's, it's very well designed uh, to deal uh, with a degraded U.S. threat, as, uh, I mean, capability, uh, as a result of arms control and as, and as a result of de-emphasizing um, um, nuclear forces for two decades. Uh, we historically have depended on numbers uh, to, to deal with, with Soviet uh, defenses. Well, the numbers are gone. Uh, we, uh, we don't have them anymore. Uh, and we've, we've done uh, apparently little or nothing uh, to compensate uh, for that uh, by enhancing the penetration uh, capabilities of our strategic missiles. I mean, I, I, I believe uh, that this is recognized in the NPR. It's, it's somewhat ambiguous, the language, but it, it, uh, it appears to, to say that they recognize that problem and, and they're going to do something about it. Well, I, I hope that's an accurate reading of, of, what, they, uh, of what, they're, what they're saying. saying. But um, we, we, we face uh, an enormous disparity in modernization. Um, they have announced over 20 new strategic systems, things, um, I mean, almost a mind-boggling number. Um, and they're, they're deploying them now. At least, uh, at least half of them are being deployed now, and, and the rest are on the development and will be deployed in the future. And the process appears to be never-ending. 
Where do they get uh, all this money a, from? Um, well, they, uh, it's not a question. Of, look, the, the a when I when I was representative of, of the Secretary of Defense to nuclear arms control um, negotiations, my secretary made uh, twenty times what um, my counterpart on on the Russian delegation <laughs> made. So I mean, there's an enormous cost difference uh, in in systems uh, in, 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 in Russia. Uh, uh, when, I mean, the U.S. salaries are so much higher that it drives up the cost of everything we do uh, in the defense and everything else. And, and they, don't, um, um, they don't have that problem. And uh, they, their priority is, is going uh, to um, the, the nuclear systems. And, and they openly say it, and they've said it many, many times, that the strategic nuclear systems are their number one priority. Uh, in many respects, uh, I mean, it's wasteful what they do. Uh, they don't need three or four different types of of every type of of, of missile or bomber that they um, that they have, but that's what they're doing. And um, the the uh, effect of that uh, over a long period of time is is quite uh, considerable. Um, and particularly when 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 you deal with with, with cheating, I mean, uh, there's significant evidence that they are conducting low yield nuclear tests. Uh, which would violate their obligations under a couple of uh, nuclear treaties, um, and we're not. And uh, that and that can have some significant long-term reliability uh, effect. Doctor, I want to drive this home just before we end. That it's not just a matter of the that they're modernizing everything and have state of the art. Uh, delivery capabilities, the nature of the warheads, um, b- battlefield ready across the triad, and that we're we're both reducing the numbers and we're not modernizing. But isn't it that even the existing infrastructure we have will be rendered impotent in the near future if we don't do anything, and we'll be stuck with literally it's like being in a gunfight with uh, you know a belligerent enemy and you don't have the ammo left well yes i, I mean the the age disparity right now is, is enormous and it's growing um unless um we modernize the u.s nuclear triad it will collapse within 15 years or at least begin uh, the collapse uh in that time period um and it's a that's a very very uh, serious threat in, in light of you know many of these people who scream loudest about uh, bogus you know Trump collusion with Putin uh, have been career Russia appeasers and, and, and oppose uh, <laughs> or nuclear deterrence or at least uh, oppose anything beyond the a minimum deterrence yes. capability. Which is it's just so frustrating because what you're saying is so true, but. At the same time, I mean, Trump and the Republican leaders need to be making this case. And, you know, you'll have your cake and eat it too. have great policy, address the real threat from Russia, and actually put your political adversaries uh, in a major bind by showing their hypocrisy. Oh, you really think Russia's the, you know, in some ways they've helped our cause because they've blown up Russia to the consummate threat of our time. All right, so then let's deal with this, which is where I want to end. How do we ultimately deal with this? Let me tell you what some of even my allies on the on the right will say. Look, we're twenty trillion in debt. Every entitlement program has a constituency that it can never be touched. Um, we've already, you know, spent so much more upgrading just our conventional forces. 
uh, you know, we're chasing our tails with the war on terror. We don't have a uh, appetite to go back to another cold war. Gosh, where do we have the get the money from to really rival Russia with our nuclear triad? And, uh, you know, in, in, in a way that's worth it, where do we get the money from? Well, money really isn't uh, the issue. The um, modernization program uh, that was adopted um, um, is part of, of the nuclear policy review, and it's really very similar to the, uh, the late Obama program. Uh, really involves only like something on three or four uh, percent the, of the U.S. defense budget. Um, and uh, I think the peak number will be five and a half percent or something like that. That is pretty uh, insignificant when the consequences are, are literally could be national survival uh, and you know survival of civilization. Uh, so money per se is not really the issue here. Uh, the the issue is more uh, ideological uh, than it is um, financial. Uh, there are a lot of cheap things we could be doing. Uh, that would enhance our, our nuclear deterrent capabilities that we aren't doing because of, of legacy uh, uh, Obama uh, policies, uh, which are based on, on ideology more than, than anything else. And uh, it's important uh, to, to do something uh, about that. Uh, look, in 2015, I, I put on a presentation in front of the Heritage Foundation on cheap, fixes um, that we could do to our, our nuclear posture. And there's actually uh, about a half dozen of them that are in the, uh, the uh, 2018 nuclear posture review. Uh, following through on, on those recommendations uh, will be more difficult uh, because there will be ideological attacks. There are ideological attacks, uh, I mean, every day on, on this. Uh, on, on nuclear modernization and money isn't really the uh, the issue. Uh, the 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 issue is whether or not uh, you're going to um, have a responsible uh, policy uh, to deter uh, people uh, that live in Moscow and talk and behave in a pretty irresponsible manner. Uh, wow. And. There's a lot at stake in this. No, 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 no doubt about it. And I mean, that's one of our truisms here at the Conservative Conscience that most things are not a money problem; they're a policy problem. And it seems like that's what you're articulating over time. Gosh, I, I could speak to you forever. I've really thoroughly enjoyed this, and um, I'd love to get you back another time to talk about the other half of this, which, which is China. Um, but really appreciate your intelligence briefing here and and your experience. Um, I know my audience is is very smart and committed to focusing on what's important, so we really enjoyed having you today. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed speaking. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Dr. Mark Schneider, senior analyst with the National Institute for Public Policy, really seasoned um, expert in missile defense, uh, nuclear arms controls, Russia, China, you name it. I'm really glad he was able to join us today. And, and, and you see, this fits into the budding thesis We've been promoting for so many months here now, properly identifying what's a threat and what's not a threat and what are the tools that we need. Putin is not the same level threat that's all-consuming of the 1970s, 1980s, but he's not nothing either. And in fact, if it continues on this trajectory, it will be a big problem because 
He will hold all the keys, and we won't. We all there, there's no shortcut around that. We have to have the deterrent, you know. And I'm speaking to people like Tucker Tucker Carlson, Pat um, Buchanan, and Coulter. Look, there's nobody who's more. Let's get out of the, half these Middle Eastern fights. Focus on our own border, our own sovereignty, our own immigration policies, our own Muslim Brotherhood problem, our own terror financing problem. Make those plays, um, and then you know. Th- that's the first and foremost threat, and that, that needs to be dealt with, and that's absolutely true. But you can't deny that even if we had the best border policies around, you would stop the problems with Sunni terrorism affecting your country, but we do have conventional nation-state threats in the form of Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran. You're, you're always going to have that, and you could have – you know. All the border security you want, but if they have nukes, and then again tactical nukes and the delivery battlefield capabilities, so then it, you know it gets very messy there because you know they have the ability to really shellac maybe a, a, you know an area of your country, and you have no ability to do that to them without destroying the whole world. That's a big problem. Um, you, know, you 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 can't let that happen. I think even if you're the most skeptical about all of our interventions, but again, it doesn't cost that much if we cut out the trillions of dollars of the Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, North Africa stuff we're doing, Central Africa, and we made the right alliances, and we focused on the things that we should focus on. And like I said, we need to be doing this anyway to deter China, North Korea, and Iran. We need missile defense, and we need the proper offensive capabilities as well. So, you know, let me know your thoughts. I want to focus on this more. We're way over time here, but there's a lot more going on. You know, Congress, the House um, appropriators are marking up the Homeland Security bill, and they're basically – this is the more conservative bill than the Senate. They're only doing a part – Funding for maybe 200 miles miles of the border wall, not addressing the courts, which is more important than the border wall, not addressing sanctuary cities, not addressing the asylum things, all the legal problems we have, which, again, is more important than the wall. And that's the opening bid. Where is Trump? You know, in an alternative universe, we would have had a weak fight, an entire week fight over culture war with Amy Barrett and the Supreme Court. We would have had a fight over sanctuaries, all these cases, I'm going to write about this tomorrow, all these growing cases of rapists, murderers that are criminal aliens coddled by sanctuary cities. He could have a fight over, um, like I said before, going after foreign influence in our election with voter fraud and non-citizens voting and being counted in the census. That would be the perfect jujitsu. And finally, a fight over this stupid one-sided arms deals that have given Russia the nuclear edge. I mean, that's, that, that, that is a quintessential MAGA talking point that Trump could harness. But alas, we cannot have nice things. Until next time, God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 